Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Mr. Jeff McCrum. He is a lighting designer and theater consultant. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for being here. No problem. You know, it's always nice to sort of have a chance to, to talk with anybody in the community about sort of what I do, because a lot of people have real misgivings about sort of theater consulting and, and like, why didn't we solve all the problems? before they yeah, got that's there. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> Having gone through some of that myself now in the last couple of years, I suddenly realize, you know, some of the consultants I must have cursed in the past that simply no one talked to them about some of the ways the venue might be used. Yeah, and a lot of it is also sometimes that um, things that are outside everyone's control, that there was a donor that really liked purple. And so that's why this wall of the theater happens to be this tone of lavender or, or something like that. Uh, a lot of times we also sort of fight with architects about, well, you know, I, I kind of want this. And we go, well, yeah, but we kind of do need a tall door on stage to get the scenery on. And they go, but it's going to interrupt my lines of the building. I'm constantly fighting architects who want to put windows inside theaters, who just want like a big upstage wall of windows. And won't that be amazing? I don't know. That does sound kind of amazing. It can be. And I think it's nice to have the option, but then you have to kind of explain to them that we need to take the place entirely dark and that they have to spend $30,000 on small clips to ensure that the shades actually are captured at the ends and there's no light bleed. And they go, well, that sounds really expensive. Why don't we just not do that? Oh, well. Because, I mean, just the the idea of being able to just open the windows on a work call sounds awesome. It Yeah, it, we did a project like that in Canada, but acousticians are very much like, well, yeah, now we have to have, like, double-thick window glazing and make sure that no sounds from outside get through the windows. And uh, it, it all kind of adds up pretty quickly. And they go, oh, it's really expensive. And it's it, it ends up being like a small two-by-two window on the upstage wall. Uh, I get it. <laughs> a lot of it is that we're we're trying to make spaces better. Sometimes we have to fight architects. Sometimes we have to fight owners. Um, sometimes we have to sort of fight electrical engineers or, or sort of electrical contractors. Uh, I'm currently in a conversation right now with an electrical contractor who ran power to DMX house lights, but didn't run any low voltage DMX to DMX house lights because they said those fixtures don't dim because the po- you, you have a dimmer rack but the module inside the dimmer rack is a non-dim, so therefore we thought the fixture didn't need to dim. I see. And so, you know, it's it's this sort of constant battle where you're you're trying to make things better. And a lot of times we we kind of get it right, um, and and we kind of get the chance to to make a, a venue a lot better, the chance that to to sort of fix some of the the age old problems that people have had in theaters. How do we get in? How do we do changeovers? How do we sort of do some of this stuff? Um, And how can we do it with fewer people and and make it safer? Um, I recall a project that was a renovation in Oklahoma uh, where the idea was that their fly rail, when they loaded the the, uh, arbors, somebody had sort of made a decision in the 1960s to sort of drop where the arbors were, but they didn't drop the loading rail. So you had students who would go out onto this loading rail and then sort of climb down onto this two two by 12 plank that had been suspended out there. 
and they would sort of be handed the bricks and then they would load onto the rail and then they would kind of be handed. And it was just incredibly like you send your students out onto this plank of wood and, oh, that's incredibly unsafe. And so, you know, a lot of times we're kind of trying to solve problems like that. Um, For their data, they had sort of punched a hole in the wall and ran an ethernet line that was then going to a Linksys router to distribute ethernet throughout the space, uh, which was great because they, they'd kind of done ethernet. But, you know, when, when we went in there and we kind of drew all these little black boxes all over the plans and they said, well, yeah, but where's our ethernet box? And I said, ethernet comes out of all the boxes now that wherever you plug in (laughs) power, you now have ethernet there. And they were just like, oh, this is going to be a real change for us that we don't sort of, that we have like 45 ethernet runs as opposed to like eight because that's what was on the router um and so we we kind of try to just make things better as as often as we can but you know sometimes it's it's that we have owners who go well you know it's just always been like that and it's kind of a tradition of ours to kind of make that a little more difficult um and it's you know I, i really sometimes wish we could have a little sheet of paper that we make everybody the architects or like we, we'll have advice for people and we'll say we should kind of think about this and you know maybe not put the dressing rooms in the basement maybe if they could be on the same floor as the stage and everybody goes no no let's, let's not do that and we kind of go could you sign the sheet of paper that said it was your call and not uh, ours yeah. and we could kind of like post it backstage and then everybody would know <laughs> but then again if you know if you've worked in new york you know that sometimes the dressing rooms are on the fifth floor Absolutely. I mean, it's, but you know, so that New York city is also a weird sort of a a space for venues in the first place. And you kind of get what you get when it comes to stage space. Um, You know, we did the Helen Hayes renovation, for example, and part of the Helen Hayes renovation was them giving up their loading dock alleyway to the St. James theater right next door. So the St. James theater could suddenly get 10 more feet of stage space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was such a, a, an insane deal, if you think about it. The idea that we're now letting one theater sort of, it's very obvious that, like, nobody really needs an alley anymore. So let's just give up that alley and get actual stage space. But to sort of make that giant move uh, architecturally in two different spaces at the same time was really uh, uh, just really bold, I thought, of, of both those players involved. Yeah. I'm guessing there was a transfer of funds as well. Yeah, you know, it's uh, second stage had bought the Helen Hayes and uh, uh, kind of were just like, well, could we make some money off of our alley and sell it to the St. James and supposed to just like having an alley? Um, So now they load through the house as opposed to loading down through their alleyway and then taking a right. They just now kind of come through the house like everybody else. Yeah. (laughs) Well, like almost everybody. But yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. The one thing that has consistently surprised me about especially educational spaces that I've been in, but not exclusively educational spaces, is just the sort of like magical thinking of front of house positions where they're just going to be suspended in space and no thought will be given to how to reach them for focus or hang. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, You know, it's it's often where whenever I hear about projects like that, I go, oh, you didn't have a theater consultant involved. Um, because especially students, because I was a student once and I realized that I did terribly unsafe things because, and this is always the excuse, because there's a show. Because there's a show, I don't have time to go get a harness. Because there's a show, I don't have time to go get a hard hat. Because there's a show, I, you know, we have to do this thing unsafely and quickly. And so 
if there's a way that I can put in infrastructure that means that they can do something safely and quickly, then it's a huge win. And so when it comes to front of house positions for uh, uh, student spaces, I'm always like, so we have to have a catwalk and we have to have a nice, decent way for them to get to the catwalk. And let's talk about stairs. Let's talk about elevators. Let's talk about other ways to access the grid other than a 40 foot ladder inside a cage that everybody has to climb and they get anxious. And how do we carry lights up there? And, and sort of a lot of that stuff that we talk about with front of house positions that are unsafe for people to get to, it's that they were probably built in the 1960s or 70s when we didn't have theater consultants for the most part. Uh, FDA is one of the, the older theater consultants um, because somebody kind of started with Jules when they were like, hey, Jules, uh, Jules basically kind of started FDA when he visited a theater and said, well, how'd you guys end up with these front of house positions? Because the architect was there and the architect was like, well, we just kind of made them up. You know, we kind of visited a couple of theaters and said, oh, you need lights in the front of the house. And so we just kind of put them out there. And he said, well, wow. this is, yeah. And, and he kind of said, well, this is, would you just please call me next time and I will totally talk you through some stuff. And so a lot of places in the 60s and 70s that we're still using today, um, the architect just kind of made it up and they made up the solution. Um, they made up where the, the pipes should be. Um, the fact that there, there's pipes there, I'm often kind of like, yay, there's pipes. Um, you know, we've had a lot of uh, OSHA regulations about catwalks that are are fairly new in the world. Um, we're not allowed to have caged ladders, for example, anymore. OSHA's like, why don't you guys just wear harnesses and have fall arrest? And then when you fall down a ladder, you don't kind of bounce against the cage on your way down. That's sort <laughs> of even worse. Um, and so we, we have a lot more safety involved as well with, with these catwalk positions and these front of house positions. And that sort of standardization has helped us make things a lot safer for scholastic spaces. Um, but a lot of times you'll, you'll probably find that that space was probably built in the 60s or 70s and didn't really have any theater people asked, or they might have asked the chair of the department who might have been an actor or you know, a costume designer, or hopefully even a scenic designer, but probably not a lighting designer, because lighting design wasn't really seen as a, a real job, even back then. Um, you know, a lot of it was that, that lighting designers were kind of busy lighting shows, and they didn't want to kind of solve that architectural problem, because they didn't get asked, if that yeah. makes sense. Um, you know, even now when I'll go work on projects, I'll be like, look, you have this lighting staff and they work here and they've already been hired and you're paying them over the summer. Could I talk to them? And they go, well, we, we don't want to bother them. And I go, I bet they wouldn't mind being bothered about some of these questions. Um, Serious question. Do they mean we don't want to bother them or do they mean we don't want you to talk to them because we don't want the budget number to go up when they ask for something? Um, it, it usually is a case where, especially in the summer, a lot of theatrical lighting designers who work for colleges are off doing other shows. So they're kind of unavailable. They're, they're kind of on a, a, a non-sabbatical where usually like, don't, don't call me, I'll see you guys in the fall. Um, and so a lot of times uh, when I talk to chairs of the departments, if I get a chance to talk to chairs of the departments, a lot of times I'm talking to an architect who works for the college or sometimes a dean. And the dean is kind of like, oh, we don't need, you know, we've hired theater experts. We, we've hired FDA. We hired the theater consultant. You're the people who are supposed to tell us how to do things. I don't necessarily trust my lighting designer, who's a good lighting designer, about the theater space. That's why I hired you guys. 
And, you know, the first thing that I come into a space, the first thing that I like to do is talk to anybody who works in the space. I don't care. I don't care if they're a student. I don't care if they're a technician. I don't care if they are the chair of the department. I don't care if they are the, the lighting designer. I don't care if they're the, the props designer. If they've worked in the space and they have thoughts on, you know what I always hate? I want to know because I don't have to use that space in the ult ultimately. It's not going to be my problem if I put a catwalk someplace where somebody doesn't like it. I go, oh, I wish I'd known. And so if I can find out, if I can talk to them beforehand and they go, you know what I always hate about our catwalks is how do we access them? And so if I can go to a meeting and say, yeah, I talked to the end user and they really hate those last four steps where the catwalk is and it would make the lighting angles better for them if we just dropped it. And so it was all at the same level. So they didn't have to like take those last four steps and kind of bang their head against the ducks. If we could just kind of make the catwalks level, that would make them really happy. And then they usually say to me, well, you know, what's to do for lighting angles? And I say, oh, you know, those it, it makes their angles better and they're kind of happier. Um, I love talking to end users. I love talking to clients. I love any of that stuff. And a lot of times it's, well, we think that if we ask the lighting designer in the venue what their thoughts are, yeah, it will cost more because they'll have all these crazy ideas. What invariably happens is I talk to the lighting designer and they go, yeah, I really just kind of want a light switch in my grid because the light switch is down on the floor right now. And kind of when that, sometimes when I get up to the grid, I have to like, oh, I forgot to turn on the lights before I get up there. Yeah. Like that's the entirety of their request. Their requests aren't outlandish. Their requests aren't, and we're going to have moving lights everywhere. Their requests aren't, and I need $400 million for gold-plated cables to connect these things. Their requests are always so reasonable that I, I get very frustrated when I can't talk to end users because I go, they're not going to ask for anything outlandish. They're just going to want to make the space better for them. And it's not going to be a whole lot. Um, sometimes we do get to provide elevators to the grid, for example, you know, and like, how awesome is that for everybody who ever does a lighting hang to take an elevator to the grid or like, oh, yeah, well, we have these new lights that we rented for the show. Let's put them in the elevator. And the elevator goes to the grid. And we're not, like, humping those cases upstairs anymore. And a, lo a lot of people are just like, "Why? Would who's going to use the elevator to the grid? Somebody who's handicapped? And I'm kind of like, maybe. Like, now we have opportunities for... Yes, maybe. And what's wrong with that? For people who kind of, like, couldn't do these things before. And that's great. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of it is that they're they're kind of afraid that I think that they're going to ask for the moon when they don't they don't want the moon at all they just kind of want a, a reasonable use of their space and yeah. and they kind of have complaints and that there's always invariably something that they love about their space there's always this is what i love and please don't change it this is what i love and i want to make that even better and so you know we i think we love talking to end users uh because they they have problems that we can help solve practically so tell me about your current place in the business and sort of where you are right now and what your general work is. So I am the uh, senior lighting systems designer for Fisher Dax Associates. Uh, I say senior because there's only one other person in the lighting department. It's a fairly small firm. Uh, I think we have about uh, 12 or 14 people, depending on how you, you sort of count them. Um, and it, it's a fairly small mobile firm. And it's, it's always sort of stayed small since it was kind of really started back in the day by Jules. Um, and 
So most of my day is spent designing theatrical lighting systems, which would be everything in the wall before the lighting designer gets there. When the some technician goes to plug in a light fixture into a socket, you know, I was the one who said, yeah, we should have 36 circuits up on the catwalk. And we should also have Ethernet and maybe a little bit, bit of DMX here and there so they could plug in a console. Sort of where we plug in consoles. That sort of stuff is, is what I spend most of my time being actively very concerned about. Um, is there a place to plug it in backstage if we can't use the lighting booth for one reason or another? Is there a place where uh, uh, somebody in a wheelchair can run the lighting console from? How can they get to that position? Can we provide a secondary position for them to run some stuff from? Um, a lot of the questions that I ask end users ultimately is how are you guys going to use your space? Are you guys going to ever do concerts where you need to have the console down on the floor surrounded by a bunch of people in the crowd? Um, are you guys just doing plays? Are you doing musicals? Are you doing dance? Are you doing uh, just plain lectures? And so I spent a lot of time trying to talk to end users and, and figure out how they're going to use their space because all of these spaces have very different technical requirements. You know, one of the things that, that we're all talking about in the world of lighting is color rendering and, and how do we get the best color out of LEDs? And, and will we ever get just like a really great white color out of LEDs. Um, and a lot of times, especially in musicals, we kind of don't need that so much. Um, we're kind of, when we cue musicals, we're kind of very fast paced that we're in a queue and then probably, you know, four to eight beats later, we're into another queue. We're kind of constantly changing all that stuff. Compare that to any Shakespeare piece where we kind of come up in a queue and we kind of sit there for five minutes while we watch somebody give a monologue. Well, during that five minutes, you know, we have a lot of time to look at their costume. We have a lot of time to look at the set. And we have a lot of time to sort of look at those colors that are there. And the costume designer sometimes will turn to lighting designers and say, how on earth did you ruin my sort of Benvolio costume that I can't see that red? <laughs> that, that red's not coming through. That is, is really prevalent to where we're going to be in Act 3, you know? Um, and so... I can't plan for an incandescent light to kind of provide that red if we didn't talk about the kinds of shows. If you say to me, ah, yeah, we only do musicals here. I go, okay, so we, we probably could do LED or do you kind of want some tungsten capability? You know, a lot of times it's, are we putting in any dimmers these days? Do, whether yeah. a space has dimmers or not is a really big infrastructure question because if we look at a space and... You know, if we kind of take a theater that seats like 300 people, I can put in probably less than 96 circuits of relays and we can control 10 LEDs off of one circuit and we can provide a ton of power for LED fixtures. But if we're putting in dimmers, I'm probably going to be thinking somewhere along the lines of 144 circuits, maybe even like uh, uh, two racks of dimmers entirely just for theatrical performances. And those have very different costs when it comes to the electrical side of things, whether we're distributing the 72 circuits or whether we're distributing 192 circuits, there's a, there's a big cost in the electrical contractor side of things that has nothing to do with, with any of the theatrical performances, but it impacts their budget numbers greatly. It, it does seem like through power modules came along at the perfect time, you know, that, that entire concept of, you know, yeah, it could, it could be whatever you need it to be. Yeah, and that's it's through power modules, for example, uh, uh, are sort of the the go to anytime that I'm doing uh, 
educational venue, certainly, because they're going to have such a wide variety. It's going to be dance, and then it's going to be not dance and a dramatic piece, and now we're going to do a musical. And, you know, to give them the flexibility where they don't even have to swap out the card, where they, they can kind of have one circuit that is a relay and one circuit that is a dimmer is is huge for them. Um, yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of times where we're really driving the uh, tungsten decision is on weirder spaces where we'll kind of be talking to them and they'll say, oh, we might do fashion shows. And I go, oh, okay, so we're going to just have a tungsten possibility. And they just go, well, why? You know, and, and fashion shows, I feel like, are 20 minutes of that color has to be spot on and absolutely perfect. And there's like no, you can't look to the lighting designer and be like, how come my red dress looked weird? Yeah. Because, you know, it's it, that then literally falls entirely on me. And it's my fault because I didn't think, oh, you, did, you weren't really serious about that fashion show thing. You know, we did the Park Avenue Armory and they would do a fashion show in a heartbeat. And so there's tungsten dimmers up there. It, it, tungsten dimmers because, A, when we kind of started that project, it was still tungsten dimmery. But like spaces like that, which are so malleable, the shed, for example, up on uh, uh, 36th Street, that's another one where there's tungsten dimmers in there because we expect them to do fashion shows. And you can't be like, Anna Wintour, come back. The lighting designer screwed up. There, She's already gone. She's in her car. So, yeah, that's I think that's uh, that's what I'm doing these days. Okay. That, uh, that makes sense. Absolutely. How did you get your start? And s- and sort of how did you discover lighting? I got my start in my senior year of high school where I had gone into... And where was that? This was in Aiken, South Carolina. Um, and I had sort of... Uh, it's not really breaking in if it wasn't locked, right? And so backstage, they had this little dimmer cabinet and they didn't actually have a lighting console what they had was uh, a slide a slide patch panel oh yeah and some circuits that worked and nobody had used this probably the theater auditorium since it had been installed and so since i had gone back there one day and sort of played around the slidey thingies and found out how exactly the slidey patch worked that you can kind of slide some of these circuits onto uh power that and the, some of those power things were actually connected to lights that actually still had lights. Uh, I sort of became the lighting guy at in this sort of air quotes there uh, at the high school through like I was screwing around once and then somebody was like for the talent show, hey, wouldn't that be really cool if we could make our the lights flash for our band? And then it was like, oh well, Jeff. Jeff knows how to work the lights in the auditorium. And so that was my senior year of high school. And then they brought in uh, a new drama teacher uh, that year. And she, like, we did a production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and I, I ran the lighting console. And I was like, oh, that was really interesting. The idea that you can kind of, like, change stuff with lights. And then I, I was going to the local uh, community college after high school because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it was, I think, tuition was a grand total of $1,500 a semester it might be a year um and then i i sort of fell in with the theater club because they didn't actually have a major um at uh, the university of south carolina at aiken Mm -hmm. and then uh i decided i kind of wanted to get more into that and then i went to point park college which is a a really big college for dance uh if you're if there's a broadway show there's probably somebody there in the chorus from point park and what i learned at point park was how to be a really good electrician um 
there's sort of no fault against any of the the teachers or or staff or anything like that. But um, we didn't really talk about design a whole lot because, um, you know, it was just one of those things where they were kind of trying to explain like, okay, this is how light and this is how it works. And you kind of, I remember my lighting design teacher saying at one point, like, I can't teach you how to, how you're going to design. I can only teach you how I design. Um, And you have to figure out some stuff for yourself, which I don't necessarily uh, agree with as a teaching philosophy, but I didn't really learn how to be a a designer. And so uh, then I moved off to Chicago because I'd always wanted to live there. Um, And uh, I applied to grad school. Uh, One of the grad schools I applied to was NYU. And uh, much to my surprise, they accepted me. And so I went to NYU. And uh, So how long were you in Chicago? I was in Chicago from uh, 97 to 2000. So I moved to, to New York in the, in the summer of 2000. Okay. Um, and, you know, while I was out there, I was working at Steppenwolf. Uh, I've worked at the Goodman. Um, and, and those were like staff jobs. And then I also did a lot of stuff with the, uh, the union out there, Local 2. Uh, I'd done Local 3 work while I was in Pittsburgh and sort of fell in with the Local 2 guys when I moved out to Chicago. Um, which was great because that gave me experience with an awful lot of great Chicago venues, the Chicago theater, the auditorium theater, um, uh, uh, Steppenwolf and the Goodman. Goodman eventually became a union shop as well, um, which I think is great because they moved right downtown at that same time. And so I, I kind of, in addition to that, if you aren't a member of at least four theater groups in Chicago, small storefront theaters, you know, you're not really, <laughs> sort of engaging in Chicago theater because so much of it is these tiny little storefront theaters. Um, About Face was really good there at the time, and, and Mary Zimmerman was doing stuff with them because they had all studied with her at uh, DePaul, and they had kind of started their own little theater company. And so I ended up sort of falling in with some people with, from there and working with Mary Zimmerman on a project. Uh, I think even before she had gotten her... Uh, uh, um, genius grant from the garther foundation i mean it was like this really great time to sort of just be around chicago doing shows um and and one of the pieces that she that i worked on with her was this totally weird theater in a warehouse like like before sleep no more by 15 years and uh she reads proust every summer and she just kind of wanted to do some scenes from uh, uh marcel Proust's work and so we just did it in this warehouse that they rented and you kind of like this crowd of like 30 people would kind of go up the stairs and experience this other thing in this other room and then sort of crowd into this loading dock space where like another group of 20 came in from the downstairs and started the whole thing over again and so it was this really fascinating piece of of theater that I was really uh uh sort of happy to be a part of um it's called the 11 rooms of Marcel Proust as a matter of fact um, and so after that, I came to New York. I got into NYU. Uh, I learned from uh, uh, Kurt Osterman and Al Lee Hughes and Robert Wurzel and eventually Emil Geiger. Um, and it, it was really one of those things where I thought I would come to NYU, go to grad school, and then go back to Chicago. And then, uh, you know, like a lot of New York stories, I just kind of stayed. Mm-hmm. You know, it was one of those things where things were okay. And, you know, I like had a job and I should just kind of like stay. And, uh, where, where I, were you working? I started working, uh, the, uh, for a place called Johnson Schwinghammer, which was an architectural oh, lighting yeah. firm. Yeah. Well, I didn't think architectural lighting was, was for me at the time. Uh, but at the same time, it was also a really big lull in the industry. 
Uh, it was a very quiet office because there were like six people there. Um, I was doing a lot of CAD work and sort of sitting in a little cubicle all day. And uh, it was very quiet. Nobody really talked. There was no, and and so it was very much like any of those movies that you see that have like terrible office jobs because oh. it's this quiet, sterile, huge volume of a space, uh, all white walls, um, and like nobody talked, nobody laughed. There was no like radio playing in the background. All of it was like exactly out of a film. And so uh, I eventually saw an ad on Craigslist for a job working in television. And so I went to work for the lighting design group for about uh, three years. And uh, while I was there, I learned from um, Jane Head and Rita Kogler, Carver. They taught me about systems design and sort of how they had kind of designed some of the studios at CNN, uh, which was a brand new building down on uh, um, 59th Street at Columbus Circle. That was Mm -hmm. their brand new studios. They had just finished that building. Um, And then they needed people to work in those studios. So I went to go work in those studios. Um, and eventually, sort of, uh, uh, one of the things that I really loved about live television was that it's live, um, and it's it's sort of a lot of fun to sort of do television. Uh, one of the terrible things about television is that it's live, <laughs> and you know, uh, people would be like, "How come on earth could you leave live television?" And it was kind of like, "Well, when do you watch television?" And they'd be like, "Well, after I get home from work, I get home from work, I turn on the television, you know." And uh, and, and I was kind of like, "Yeah, that's just it." Is that I went to work every day at four p.m until midnight or i went to work from 4 a.m until noon and it is just an entirely terrible social life uh everybody in in television they all work the same hours and it's terrible and they end up being married to people in television because those are the only people who sort of like get it and Mm -hmm. and they're kind of both awake at the same time um and it was a little wearing for me um and so i eventually answered another craigslist ad at a little uh, architectural lighting firm called uh, Fisher Morant Stone. I somehow can't believe that that FMS was advertising on Craigslist. It was the weirdest thing. Um, you have to understand that that when I got the job, uh, so when I applied for the job, it just said like architectural lighting firm seeks uh, uh, CAD draft drafts people. You know, I didn't sort of understand what I was getting into when I applied. And I got this email back from the somebody at fmsp.com. And then I kind of entered the thing in and I was like, Fisherman Stone. And I was like, that's weird. You know, like, no, it couldn't be like Jules Fisher, could it? <laughs> and of course it was Jules Fisher. And you sort of don't know that he has this whole other side of, of industry that he's helped create that is sort of architectural lighting design. Because in the 1960s, some director came up to him and was just like, Jules, you have to light my apartment. And Jules said, I will totally do it for money. And sort of got involved with this young upstart designer who was working as a, a, the head of the electrical at Century Lighting, if I recall, named Paul Morantz. Okay. Um, Paul is an incredibly brilliant, innovative super smart guy with a just a, a wide depth of knowledge uh you're probably familiar with gobos i am <laughs> do you know how we used to make gobos in the 1960s no i assume it involved acid before acid when uh you needed a gobo let's say that you needed like pointed designs or whatever i need a tree you basically would call up century lighting and they would say great and then they would turn to a bunch of guys who had little brass saws who would draw out the design and then literally hand saw out the design. 
Wow. With all of this stuff. And Paul Morantz, who sort of liked photography and, and all this other weird stuff, was like, what if we started acid etching gobos? And everybody in the company was like, what does that even mean, Paul? And he was like, well, we would have a gobo and we'd have a design and then we'd kind of like, like take the design and then throw some acid on top. We get some sort of thing that is like acid proof and we put it on top of the thing and then we do an acid bath and it eats away the part that has been etched and scratched. And then we don't have to have everybody cutting gobos for two weeks for a Broadway show. And that is why we now have laser etched gobos because Paul Morantz was like, what if we stopped using saws? Wow. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's just that kind of like breadth of knowledge. And the two of them started this architectural lighting firm together. That is exactly what you say, where it's, it's like you expect it to have huge column windows. And, and there they were asking for people to come draft on, on Craigslist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came in, I had to take a little drafting test. Uh, the funny thing is like, after I got hired there, I never saw anyone else have to take the drafting test. So I have a feeling they were just like, where do we get this guy? Oh, we got him off Craigslist. Okay. Can he actually draft or can he just like <laughs> say that he can draft? Um, Cause a lot of vector works was kind of uh, the, the in thing at the time. And nobody kind of was, was still doing AutoCAD for theatrical lighting um, because AutoCAD is, is kind of hard um, to learn. And vector works was, was much more like click on this box and now you can draw a box. Yeah. Um, and so I had I had taught myself uh, uh, AutoCAD to work at Johnson Schwinghammer, and then uh, so I, I fell in with uh, Fisherman Stone for about uh, seven years or so, and uh, then at, over on the Fisher Dax side of the office, it's literally two sides of the same office, and and Jules is also in the same office in this uh, far corner. Um, they had an opening in their lighting department. Um, for a theater consultant. Before you move on to um, transitioning over to FDA, did your duties ever change at Fisher Moran Stone? How did your time there change and grow? You know, it's one of those things where everybody who starts in architectural lighting, they start just drafting. You know, somebody comes up to them and says, this is a thing that we want to do. Here's a lighting layout. And, And they were really amazing about teaching young people. You know, people kind of refer to it as, as FMS college. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really is an educational opportunity where you come in and they, they don't really expect that you know anything. Uh, Charles Stone once handed me a giant uh, catalog of lamps, and he was like, "You you know about fixtures? Go read up on lamps because they're the the start of all of all architectural lighting. Are we going to use halogen? Are we going to use fluorescent? Are we going to use HMI? Like there was a whole lot of much more lamp based." conversation back then about like what's our initial source and what's our color temperature and, and sort of what's the the base level of of this project in a way that these days you kind of have shortcut a lot of that with with led conversations but um yeah and and so it really did start with just sort of executing a lot of designs of, of other people there but they they are very good about and you're going to be doing the design on this project you're going to sort okay. of like work your way up to writing specs. You're going to work your way through actually doing layouts. We're going to send you to meeting with meetings with architects, and you're going to sort of start talking about how can you can use light in a, a, a much more permanent manner. I remember working on a project and not really fully understanding that all of my decisions were permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in theater, if you have a light that you've put on a plot and you don't actually need it, you turn it off. 
and you can kind of look through the, the console and be like, oh, I never ended up using that end of pipe position. I thought I would for that doorway, but turned out that they didn't need it. In the world of architectural lighting, if you have six lights in a hallway, you have to explain why they're all there. And if one of them goes out, somebody will come in and replace it and fix the light bulb. If you can't be like, I don't want, you know, it turns out that one didn't actually do the right thing. I just want to turn it off. They're like, it's too late. You can't. You can't yeah. take it down. We can't unwire it. We can't do any of that stuff. And and so your your decisions that you make are for the lifetime of the building for the most part. Um, and, and so because the stakes sort of are, are higher in a weirder way, that was one of the really interesting things that I learned was like, make every light deliberate. And of course, you know, that, that then transcends in, into back into theatrical lighting where it's like, make every light deliberate. If you don't need a light, don't, don't put the light in the plot. Um, you, you know, you can kind of get away with, with that for, for so long. Of course, you do have to have like an emergency light. For like, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, we could use a special over there. Oh, that's okay. I got a light for that. Uh, so ultimately, you were doing your own uh, architectural lighting designs. Yeah, they would kind of, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what. There's people who are like, oh, that's the museum guy, and you know, there's there's people who are like, oh, they're really good at home design. And and I ended up uh, working on a team that did a lot of homes. Um, so maybe I'm actually secretly really good at home design. I, I'm not really sure. We did a lot of private homes. Um, where the the budgets are like in the millions of dollars for somebody's like ranch house in in Wyoming or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to spend like $15 million on this house. And you're just like, what? And so, yeah, I also got involved with, uh, I like airports a lot. Uh, I got involved with the JFK project to do uh, JetBlue. One of the cool things about the JFK project, the JetBlue project was the central space to that. After you, right after you get past security, they have this central gathering area and it just has stairs. Yeah, people sit on and you know they kind of went to uh, uh Times square and they went to the met and they kind of talked about how everybody in new york we all sit on stairs all, all these like spaces that are common greeting spaces we all kind of gather in the end we all kind of just sit down on the stairs and so they kind of built some of those stair sitting positions into the airport because you get to the airport and you're kind of like i just want to sit down for a minute i don't want to buy a snack and sit yeah. down at the table at the snack area. I just want to sit down. I don't want to sit down at a table with a bunch of other weird strangers. The great thing about sitting on stairs is that we all face the same direction. It's it's sort of parallel play, right? When you sit down on the stairs outside the Met because you're waiting for your friend Jerry who's still inside looking at Tintoretto's or whatever, you know, you kind of have a chance to just like sit with all of these other people and then like some passerby gets in a fight with a bird and we're all just like, did you just see that? Was that, <laughs> that was great. You know, and we kind of are all that natural audience for that six-year-old fighting with a pigeon over a hot dog that it, 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 I think they kind of wanted to capture part of that uh, idea at the airport was the idea that like you guys all are all kind of doing the same thing together. So let's, let's do that in the airport menu too. Uh, so tell me, tell me about that project. I mean, it's 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 huge. I mean, for one, it's <laughs> about as big as projects get. I think uh, it is easily one of the largest architectural projects I I worked on, um, especially because uh, for the uh, they later built an international terminal as well. At, at that time, JetBlue didn't have any international flights. Well, they did, but they had to like then go park over at Terminal Four, where there's a an area for um, 
uh, Customs and Border Patrol, Patrol, and then they'd like then have to ferry the plane back, and and sort of ferrying the plane back to Terminal Five became a thing, and so they eventually built this international terminal, and so it, then I kind of had to go to work on that again, except it had been like four years and technology had changed. And it was kind of like, well, I want that same compact fluorescent downlight rectangle thing over here. And it was kind of like, well, now we have to like ask somebody really nicely if they'll make that same thing again. Um, One of the interesting things that we had to do on that project was uh, they have these air tubes that connect it to the old Saarinen terminal. Hmm. And one of the problems was that the roadway that drops you off at the JetBlue terminal because um, the Saarinen terminal wasn't sort of uh, allowable to have people in that still had a ton of asbestos. The uh, flight tubes, which are, are protected by the uh, architectural league, we kind of have to leave those alone. And so they tried to dig out the roadway so that trucks could get into the terminal for JetBlue. But because they could only dig down so far on the roadway, they actually had to raise the flight tube. And when they raised the flight tube, they had to go find all the same original lighting fixtures to match the the sort of extension of the flight tube because i think they had to extend it by like eight or 12 feet when they raised it up um so i got a phone call one day and they were like i need a t12 i need a, a an eight foot t12 fixture and i was like an eight foot t12 in the year 2010 i don't <laughs> i was like so this is why you don't want a t12 and i started to go into it and they were like no no we have to match the existing terminal tubes that are there, which this isn't, this isn't a discussion about it, yeah. what we want or not want. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the discussion as to why the T8 is a better source or like, why, why don't we use LEDs? It was, we have to match what's there now so that it all is unified. And so that was uh, uh, an interesting sort of, Oh, okay. Like you kind of have to call somebody now the number of T12s at the time was still like 50% of the fluorescent lamp sold because of all of that stuff from the 1960s still sort of used those lamps. But finding a manufacturer who could kind of put together a driver was like a weird, interesting process. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was a really, really large building. And um, a lot of it was sort of what's the rhythm of the space and what's the rhythm of corridors and and sort of how do we start to put some uh, uh some schematic rollout thing that like we can kind of start it here and it just kind of so if you go there the the corridors are small uh rectangular downlights and they're kind of at a rhythm in these, these ceiling tiles so it's kind of like the light fixtures and the speakers and the fire strobes and the sprinklers those are all kind of at a rhythm and the idea is that it's kind of moving you along uh, 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 sort of like a, a roadway, the idea that you kind of have that dotted line on the roadway, the ceiling's kind of trying to do that same thing, go this way. And then you get into the uh, passenger lounges, which are off on the sides. And those are a very, I wouldn't say haphazard, but I would say scattered series of uh, four foot linear things that sort of poke down out of the ceiling. And so the ceilings kind of rise up a little bit, but then the light fixtures kind of poke down and it's a little more random. Um, We ran a lot of calculations to sort of find random patterns that we can kind of roll out. There's actually a a rhythm to it, a pattern to it, if you kind of go there and study it extensively um, and sort of see where it starts to repeat. But the idea was that kind of when you got into the away from this like travel lane into this sort of milling about space, the light fixtures did the same thing. 
So what was the timeline on this project? You know, on you know first on the first on Terminal Five, and then I know you mentioned several years later you went back for Terminal Four. But let's just say on Terminal Five. Uh, on Terminal Five, you know, all architectural projects take three years to build, um, <laughs> and so uh, you know the the Empire State Building was like eighteen months from start to finish, and it's kind of like what? And then you realize it didn't actually like deal with any safety. You know, there's all like that shot of those guys like hanging out eating lunch on an yeah. I beam at the eighty fourth floor, and you're like, no. Don't do that, guys. Um, and so this that project was probably about five years from from Genesis of JetBlue wants to build a thing and, and JFK is doing a, a large major renovation. Um, you know, a lot of that work is the design work, especially, is really done a lot on a sheet of paper beforehand. I, I was kind of described as like, well, you first you kind of start with the napkin sketch, the same thing you're sitting in a bar and you kind of like start going like, oh, what if, what if, how do we like transition people through these spaces? How do we kind of get them to mill about over there? And, and how can we kind of do some of that stuff? Um, and so it was probably about three to five years. And then the second part with the international terminal, that was like a year, six months of design. Cause it was just like, okay, we still have the hallways. Great. Well, do the same idea there and we have this milling about space great we'll do that space there um one of the interesting things about that one was customs and border patrol gives you a binder it's about two inches thick and it says these are the light levels that are required at all of these spaces mm-hmm. when you get off because customs and border patrol they need 75 foot 70 foot candles if i recall at the passport inspection station but sort of waiting for the passport inspection station, which is this large volume of space, you're kind of, as an architectural lighting designer, restricted by the number of watts that you can use per square foot in mm-hmm. a lot of these these spaces. And so part of it is like, well, because watts per square foot, I have to use them all at the desk where they need 70-foot candles to read these these documents from like various other countries. That means like, while you guys are waiting, you guys have like 10-foot candles of space over there. So you, you kind of don't see people kind of reading novels while waiting in line because there's just sort of not enough light because you had to kind of spend your watts elsewhere. What were some of the surprises and how did you fix them? Yeah, a lot of it, it, it stuff like that was was a lot of Customs and Border Patrol stuff that, that like this bi- big binder, you know, you usually don't get an instruction manual as to like what exactly you need. Uh, uh, the IEC and guys, they have guidelines. They have uh, suggested guidelines. Um for a desk, for example, between 35 to 50 foot candles. It, a lot of it depends. What are you doing at your desk? Are you reading a thing? Is it a pencil? Is it pen? Is it typewritten word? You know, they kind of have these guidelines that they publish because we have macular degeneration. How old is the usual user? Um, but the Customs and Border Patrol was very much like, there's no haziness here. I need 70 foot candles. Mm-hmm. You have to provide it. So a lot of it was sort of just doing the the homework the way that you would as a lighting designer when you're trying to try to figure out how do i light this doorway from this electric how do i kind of do some of that stuff and so it was we had to do a lot of calculations we had to uh, prove a lot of our work um there's a, a great calculation lighting calculation software called agi 32 where you can kind of build it in uh, a cad version and then say like on this plane of light how much light will get there and they'll kind of count how many bounces it bounces off the walls and stuff do you, do you plug IES files into that? Yeah. And so basically you have an IES file that you sort of say, this is a light fixture. It's this height. Um, and it, it again, it takes into account all of the bounces. You can actually set it so if you have giant clerestory windows like they do at JFK, you can say, okay, this building faces south. 
this is the time of day. This is exactly where it falls in the world. And they can actually say, this is what it looks like at sunset on Solstice. I see. And so it's it's a really clever piece of software that solves a lot of problems, but it does take time to run. You'll, yeah. You would set up like especially a, a, a space like that and sort of let it run and, and kind of like overnight and come back the next day and be like, oh, good. It turns out that we are going to be okay. But it was Got always it. kind of like, what if it's not? So a lot of it is, is just kind of doing the, the homework. Tell me about making the transition to Fisher Dax. There was an open slot and uh, essentially I kind of went over there and, and talked to those guys. And I was like, yeah, I see that you guys have this, this open position and I would kind of like to do that. And, you know, it's their sister company. So it's a little awkward to sort of poach employees, if that makes sense. Um, but, you know, I, I really wanted to get back to using my theatrical knowledge because like I had this MFA and I wasn't really using it. And, you, you know, one of the things that I think anybody who works in theater wants to do is we want to make it better for the next person. You know, if you're doing a show and you kind of have a couple hours and you're in the theater anyway, you'll probably just sort the gel. If you're doing a show and you're kind of have a few hours anyway, you'll probably just coil the cables, you know, on your loadout. You don't just like take a bunch of stuff and just like throw it in the corner and be like, that's somebody else's problem. You know, we, we kind of all understand like, well, it, I might be the person who comes in next. I should probably just solve that problem. Um, and, and, you know, I think theater people are, are ultimately problem solvers. And, and, you know, a lot of our problems are practical and it's time-based. And, well, I'll just kind of solve that problem now because it might, I might need that time later to kind of like, oh, great. I'm really glad that was neatly coiled. I'm really glad that that was organized. I'm really glad that that was kind of done for me before I got here. You'll clean up a lighting console, right? And, and like the area around the lighting console, if you have to sit there for like a week, you're not going to like just have this giant stack of papers that's loosely there that some director can like just knock off. You're going to be like, well, I have to clean those up. I can't just like let them sit there. And so, you know, the opportunity to sort of solve bigger theatrical problems was really uh, attractive to me. The idea that we could sort of solve you know what I really hate is that front light position. It just drives me nuts. There's no safe way to get out to that balcony rail. Well, I can make a safe way to get out to your balcony rail that is still going to leave your balcony rail useful and attractive. So the architect is happy and the end user is happy. And that makes me really happy, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I, I kind of made the move over and they then hired somebody else who now works over at Fisher um, Rance, um, sort of doing my old job. It's kind of easy to find architectural lighting designers in a weird way these days. Uh, Penn State, for example, puts like 40 of them out a year. Uh, the, there's other programs that are, that are specifically designed for architectural lighting designers. Um, they're all going to go work at engineering firms as electrical engineers, or they're going to go work at other things. And, and so it's kind of a little bit easier to sort of find those people than it is, uh, uh, I think, people who are really interested in solving theatrical problems on a, on a day job. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a very good freelancer. You know, there's people who are freelancers and I absolutely have the most respect in the world. Um, every time I ever freelance, I get clammy. Uh, I get really nervous. I'm very anxious. I will be on a job and I will have like four jobs lined up, but I'll be like, but what about that fifth one? And I just, I'm really, I find it incredibly stressful. And anybody who has the strength of will to be a freelancer 
God bless you. Uh, you are a magical, amazing people. And uh, uh, I, I salute each and every one of the members of, of any IA, of, of any lighting designer or any design firm, or arch- like theatrical people. I just find absolutely amazing because I just can't do it. And yet I still want to work in theater. So I got really lucky. What's a typical work day or work week for you as a consultant at FDA? Our office uh, is 9.30 till 6 every day. And a lot of it is meetings with architects. A lot of it is, um, you know, we'll, we'll, if we just talk about like a, a standard project, it, it sort of has different phases. And some phases are uh, uh, figure out how many circuits we can put into this room. How many circuits do we need for a theater? Um, what kind of shows are you doing? We have kind of have some of these conversations with architects, with end users. Um, and so part of my days are involved with discussing how we're going to use spaces. Uh, and then we also kind of get into the practical side of things where we go, okay, so now that we've decided that this very small theater needs uh, uh, 96 dimmers, where are they going to go? You know, are we going to put like 96 circuits on stage? No, of course not. We need some for front of house. Well, how many do we need for front of house? And and so we kind of then have to reverse engineer uh, light plots. And and how would I light a show in this volume is a weird discussion because I don't, there's no actual show. There's no title. There's no script. There's no anything. But you kind of go, well, we need front light. Front light's a thing. So where can the front light come from? And how many? How much of it does there need to be? Okay, so this space, you know, let's say that it needs like, it's, you know, 36 feet across. Okay, well, that's probably going to be like five areas because I can't have like an even number of areas. That doesn't make any sense. Somebody's going to stand on center. So I need to have an odd number of areas. So five seems reasonable. And then it's like this far upstage. So you kind of start breaking it down by areas. Then once you do that, then you can kind of be like, well, I need front light for this many things and that many things. And maybe it's a two color front light. So maybe it's that. And so that's sort of like how we then break up those circuits. We kind of have to do all these light plots from moment one, where we talk about how many circuits are going to be in the space. Um, And so we spend an awful lot of time sort of theoretically designing shows that don't exist. And is it going to be a musical? Is it going to be a dance piece? Um, uh, we have really great conversations with how else can we use the space. Um, one of the things I often talk about is there's going to be a time in the future, and architects never believe me, where we're going to seat the audience on the stage and the stage will be in the house. We'll probably do it sooner than you think. You've done that show. You've seen that show. Of course. Right. Everybody in theater knows this will happen eventually. Architects think it's the craziest thing. They are just like, that's why would you do that? we've put the seats here for a reason and we put the stage there for a reason. We go, well, you know, the artistic director has been there for seven years and you know, they're, they're kind of tired of the same thing and they kind of just really wanted to shake up their production of Christmas Carol or whatever, like it'll happen. And they just never believe me. And so sometimes we're kind of taking those types of shows that those like weird one-offs, we're kind of trying to account for those in some of our lighting positions as well. Because if there's a way that we could use the backside of the catwalk to do some of that stuff. Well, when they kind of bring that thing out into the apron or they do a passerelle and there's an orchestra in the middle, you know, kind of how are they still going to use that space? And we we kind of theoretically spend a lot of time during the design process talking about how are they going to use this space? How are they going to get there? And and sort of uh, one of the other things we do backstage is we do the blue lights. We do the run lights backstage as well as the work lights. And 
again, it's a, a sort of thing where the architect is like, well, does it have to be a blue light? What if we just like use the white lights and we dimmed it down? And we have to explain like there's this sort of visual vocabulary. Like if you and I were to have this conversation and could magically be transported anywhere in the world and the, the we kind of arrive in a space and the lights are blue lights and they're step lights and they're at a low light level, you and I will not continue this conversation at that volume. We won't. We will suddenly be talking very quietly because we've been trained. There's a visual vocabulary. When the blue lights are on, there's a show. Um, and, you know, architects, sometimes they just kind of go, well, why does it have to be blue? And I go, because we're all sort of trained for that. We've kind of all thought about it. We've kind of, it's just something that, that happens. If we were to go backstage, it would be red. It would just be sort of weird. So there's sort of conventions that we're kind of explaining to architects yeah, like we would just kind of, like if it was green, it would still be like, well, it's just weird. And if it was like a low level of white, it would just be like, why is it so dark back here? And we would we would actually probably remark at it in like a regular tone of voice. It's really dark back here, you know. But if it's a blue light and it's on and it's a jelly jar on the wall, you and I are are just like, shh, shh, there's a show. Um, and so we we spend a lot of time sort of figuring out the how we're going to light the areas backstage, how we're going to light. The, the eventual shows that come in here um, and then tying all these systems together, um, all that stuff, it, it all has to be drafted. It all has to be designed. It all has to be written down in a way that somebody can eventually build it. We don't get a lot of phone calls from contractors. They're looking at drawings. And so we have to figure out all of those drawings and, and sort of come up with a, a, a visual vocabulary for drawings to sort of explain like, so here's this outlet device that somebody's eventually going to plug a uh, two pin and ground plug into. So I have to draw that box, right? We have to we kind of start with what they're going to plug something into. What does that box look like and how big is it? And then what does it connect to backstage? And does it go to a dimmer? Does it go to a relay? And so we kind of have to draw all of that stuff and these architectural drawings. And so I spent a lot of time doing CAD work. I spent a lot of time. Um, these days we're kind of moving very slowly into Revit which is uh, ceases to be a two-dimensional series of drawings, and it now is a, a three-dimensional uh, giant set of drawings. It's the whole building, uh, building integration software idea that now when I put in things, whether it's a light fixture or the AV person puts in some speakers, that there is it kind of gets drawn on the wall, and there's depth to these boxes when they're recessed into walls. And... Revit will kind of say, it looks like you're running into a sprinkler pipe. Does one of you want to move your thing? So we're kind of building these buildings virtually before we even get a hole dug in the ground. And we're going to leave it there for now with our guest, Jeff McCrum. Check out the next episode for the second half of our interview with him. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight, we tweet at podcastinglight, and we're on Facebook at castinglightpodcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show. Come to my